0: Welcome to Real Decarbonization, a podcast about how the oil and gas industry will lead into the energy future. I'm Tisha Schuler, your host and the CEO of Adamantine Energy. The series of mini pods accompanies my latest book, Real Decarbonization. And today we have a special edition for you. I sit down with my colleague, Adamantine's Director of Sustainable Investment, Katie Bays and we talk about launching Cerebro, our firm's new market advisory services. I think you'll enjoy hearing about this because Katie brings a really different perspective. And as our listeners know at Adam and team, we don't try to agree on things. We try to look at these really challenging issues around oil and gas, other energy, climate from different perspectives, and we invite pushback. And so Katie has a totally different take on the world, both from her experience, but also from her informed point of view. And you'll get to hear that today. Katie brings a policy and regulation analysis background to our work. She advises uh, companies and policymakers on the impacts of clean energy and climate policy. She's worked extensively with mutual funds, pension funds, and other large institutional investors. And she has particular expertise in liquid fuel market policies and incentives, upstream, midstream, and LNG, global energy trade, and as you'll hear so much more. You can hear more about Katie in our discussion today and also read about her in our show notes. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Katie Bays. Katie Bays, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me, both here uh, as an employee at Adam and Gene, but also today on the Real Decarbonization Podcast.
1: Thank you, Tisha. I'm very excited to be here, both as an employee of Adam and Teen and here on the Real Decarbonization Podcast. (laughs) Perfect. So after,
0: it's just been a couple months since you joined our team and we pretty quickly launched Cerebro, our new markets advisory. I think it would be useful for our audience to hear from you on what you think those services are going to be, I think you should cover the name too, where it came from and what our our clients can expect to see.
1: Well, awesome. Thank you. Yeah. And I I am so excited for this part of our collaboration together. I'm excited for all of the things we can do together, but particularly this new service that we're offering that we've called Cerebro, and I will touch on the name and where that came from, but I just am very excited to see what this new practice brings to our team. The name is a riff on the one of the about adamantine little factoids that's on the website, which is for the X Men slash superhero nerds in the world, of which a group of which I consider myself a member. And the reference from adamantine writers to one of the references is to X Men to the substance that Wolverine's claws are made out of. And so when I was Trying to think about a way for us to continue that nerdy, cool kind of brand identity with this new service, I thought of the thing in the X-Men franchise where Charles Xavier, Professor Charles Xavier, makes a big machine that magnifies his psychic abilities around the world, and that machine is called Cerebro. Which is not very creative. It's just Spanish for brain, but <laughs> I loved that that image. Being able to kind of anticipate and see what's coming, I thought that was so core to the Admontine brand and services and differentiators. So I wanted to kind of continue that. So, but getting into kind of what does that mean in terms of our our services. What we'll offer with Cerebro is something that I think is very familiar to a lot of asset managers. It's a macroeconomic research product. And that when we say research product, it's written research delivered to our clients in a timely manner relative to the sort of market moving events, uh, pieces of policy and regulation that are emerging both in North America and in Europe that are having an influence on energy companies, uh, climate policy globally. And we will supplement and kind of augment that research offering with regular virtual and in-person events with thinkers, big thinkers like yourself, Tisha, policymakers, and other folks who are active and influential in the energy and climate policy space. And I think what it makes me so excited about this is I think it just takes some of the skill sets and differentiators that you and I both have and developed over the years and um, trying to provide a new choice and a new perspective, both for asset managers and for our energy company clients who are all sort of working together, I think, to try to solve similar but different problems in the context of the energy transition.
0: Yeah. And I find it so interesting because in the last three years, the investor calculus on what how where when to invest in or do business with oil and gas companies has really gotten complex and on the flip side for our you know our existing clients needing to understand what success looks like for their investors is, has also gotten nuanced and lots of competing pressures that we talk about throughout our work from, you know, the ESG movement to the anti-ESG movement, from, you know, IRA funding to the potential for permitting reform. What our listeners don't know is that you, Katie, are someone that I met at this point, maybe like five years ago, and it was work love at first sight because the, the things that I really don't know very much about are the things that I have been calling you for years to get your your take on. And I think it's going to be really fun and really interesting for us to bring you know my sort of industry-centric point of view. I, I feel I almost take personally the pressures on them. And then you have this very different lens um, from the money side of things. Can you talk a little bit about just what brought you here what what are the different roles you've played that gave that have given you this experience that is really so foreign to me and to you know a lot of our our colleagues
1: yeah so probably there are a lot of ways to answer that question but i'll try to kind of cover the things that are most relevant to where we are today but one of the things that i think has been really valuable to me over the course of my career is that i've taken that sort of what you call the money perspective from two different and really, I think, very siloed perspectives. So one of them is the financial, the capital markets perspective, understanding what the appetite is. And and I think of the financial markets as much as it gets a reputation for being this like really rigorous, economically oriented, quantitatively driven, sort of group thinky, part of the economy it's also very social and i think where people if they get you know the capital markets wrong especially the active money management side where i think you to people tend to miss something is the social aspect that folks are shifting around in firms quite often. They're building careers over, you know, long periods of time, usually with the support and the collaboration of other people. And there's just a strong social evolution that's happened in the investment space, as a lot of asset managers have been burned by the energy complex. You know, we've kind of had this long, depressive period of energy prices that's that's led to a great deal of turnover in in terms of who's managing money in the energy complex on the on the investor side so there's been a lot of that and then there's also been a lot of you know kind of the personal evolution that a lot of us have gone through over the course of the last 10 years which is hey I can do something about this energy transition thing and I because I can I want to and so there's this big social aspect to what the financial markets attitudes appetites sentiment is and then on the other side, I've got a lot of experience I've accumulated over the years for, as an economic analyst. And economics, I would put as being much less subject to trends and social influences, and much more subject to, you know, the core business of commodity trading, geopolitics, maybe to a degree. But even you know, even within the context of geopolitics, economists are not usually the best at adjusting to new realities, like, for instance, when Russia invaded Ukraine, economists maybe weren't the people you sought out, if you wanted to understand what that meant. But but I think the economic lens is really valuable as a grounding tool, because when we talk about the energy transition, we do talk about it in a multi-decade context. And, you know, where the financial markets tend to struggle is in that long-term view, but economists, you know, that's the bread and butter of of economics is making long-term projections. So I've worked both as an economist, I started at the EIA, worked at a couple of different economic consulting firms, Energy Ventures Analysis and Berkeley Research Group over the course of the last dozen years. And I've also spent most of my career as as a policy analyst for institutional investors, uh, the boutique investment bank, high capital markets. And then I think where I've probably got most of my reputation from is the firm I founded uh, in 2019 called Santel Strategy. And so we've, I've provided that financial policy lens to a lot of different audiences over the course of about a seven-year period of time, but it's underwritten by the economics. And I've always found that clients find a lot of value in that.
0: There's a lot of interesting things about us expanding our thinking into this space. And one of the, the things I really have enjoyed so far, Katie, having you on the team is we always pride ourselves at Adamantine at debating even things we think we're pretty darn sure about really asking if we're staying up to date with the the latest inputs, the most likely changes in social risk, the incoming perspectives on policy. And so this idea of Cerebro, of expanding our psychic abilities, it's like there's all this grounding in data and facts, but there's this huge amount of just thoughtful projection that we have to do about what's coming. And, and having an additional lens, I think is is going to be really important and allow us to usefully debate some of these most likely outcomes. And so l- let me put this to the test and, and ask you something in particular, because so much of the, the talking we're doing on this podcast with guests has been about real decarbonization. So this is decarbonization happening at scale. And I'm wondering how you think
1: about that from the market's advisory perspective. I really fundamentally deeply believe that this is the challenge that my generation and our people working in the energy industry today need to dedicate the next 10 years of our lives to figuring this out. And, you know, I believe that as a person who's started in the industry kind of hearing the messages from let's just say, you know, the established voices that, at that time, you know, 10 or 12 years ago, that so much of what we have already accomplished could not be done. And I think it's really, really important to me that we acknowledge that because if you learned about the energy industry in 2010, you would never have been able to tell anyone what 2023 would look like. And I think that we have to just be really honest about that. So, how do we need to approach forecasting in 2023, knowing that we're probably not that much better at seeing the future than we were 10 years ago? So we've, you know, where do we need to be open to change? I mean, that that's a critical analytical framing question that I that I try to approach the world with. You know, where are the energy and where is the energy industry hard? in the sense that where you've got hard infrastructure, you've got sort of well-established economic framings. So like within the power sector, for instance, it's kind of structured in a particular way and that those structures are not necessarily inherent. They can be changed, but they're not easy to change. So, you know, looking at things like what's been going on in some of our power markets, like the ERCOT market down in Texas, I think there's parts of the hard infrastructure that's starting to break. And so what does that breaking mean? You know, is that accelerating or decelerating for the transition? Who does that who does that benefit hurt? So those kinds of big questions I think are really critical to thinking about what is this next decade of decarbonization? What kind of foundation for the decision making of many of the executives and investors who are existing in this market today? How are those systems evolving changing? and maybe devolving? Those are all kind of important framing questions. And then politically, this the backdrop of what is expected of our policymakers and leaders. You kind of mentioned, Tisha, the ESG, let's say dynamism around the acceptability of ESG as an investment framework, the politics around that, and in general, any area where politics become kind of a prominent driving force. You see a lot of volatility in terms of decision making. So that that volatility isn't always productive, but I think there are a lot of interesting venues that really just come back to one principle. If I look at this from the point of view of an investor, what I'm looking for is I'm looking for a moderate return and low or moderate risk investment. And that's that evolution is the one that I come back to. How do we as a team here with Cerebro, how do we present our investor clients with a menu or a new lens to understand the risk outlook? So how do we inform that context of what's low to moderate risk investment? And how do we develop And understanding and clarity and certainty around what those returns are going to look like in an environment where a significant portion of return is tied to policy. So, you've got obviously political mechanisms that are trying to incentivize different kinds of technology through tax credits or credits like explicit LCFS credits or RENs, things like that. How do we layer into that decision-making, make people smarter in terms of how they understand risk to revenue and smarter in terms of how they understand sort of the long-term fundamental risks that are evolving and affect how a potential investment or company are going to operate in the next 10 years. So there's a lot going on. But how can we distill it down into basically two questions on what's the upside, what's the downside, and give people a better lens for decision-making that way?
0: I'm really intrigued in how you do boil down this world of a million factors into a couple central questions. And I want to push on that idea, but turn the tables and think about it then from the company's perspective, the portfolio company, and how they articulate their plans in this world. So we, for example, are encouraging our clients to put these competing priorities front and center. They have to deliver on the, you know, the business requirements of today profitably, and at the same time, simultaneously imagining or reimagining or investing in a business of the future as, as part of their decarbonization trajectory. What advice do you have for our company leaders on how to articulate their real decarbonization plans?
1: Yeah, so I I think the best thing that companies can do is present themselves as a part of the, the meaty middle of the solution to our decarbonization problem. And what I mean by that is, looking at it from the point of view of investors, you've got... a pretty well understood landscape in terms of what does a clean energy investment look like? And there's some evolution to that framing because of the IRA. So there's some changing economics in terms of new tax credits or extended tax credits. But in general, investors are pretty well versed in our traditional renewable energy investments, wind and solar. They have been and remain somewhat wary of investments in clean fuels, where you've got you're driving revenue from credits that are fundamentally not hedgeable. So you've got, you're taking, potentially taking commodity risk, you're taking policy risk, but you're not able to hedge any of that out in the long term. So there's some anxiety around the ability to get confidence that clean fuels investments are going to be worthwhile. This landscape has been around the way that more or less the way that it is. It's not likely to change in this very, very near term. Where I see the opportunity for companies is that investors are still looking for opportunities that are decarbonizing in nature, but the risk landscape isn't providing enough of those opportunities. So companies that are established in this in the space that have balance sheets and are diversified in some way, those companies have an opportunity to engage with investors, create, I think, the sort of clean or clean adjacent or decarbonizing investment opportunities, and to present those options to the market with lower relative risk than a standalone company would do. And when I talk to folks, I hear a lot of this, like, how do we know who the next the next Google is going to be, or then next, really the next unicorn in the space, or, you know, like Larry Fink's letter, I think mentioned something along the lines of the next thousand unicorns are going to be in the clean energy space. And like, that may all be true, but picking those companies is really, really, really hard. On the other hand, working with established firms that have decarbonizing investments that they can make to ensure that their investors are at the table and exposed to the successes of those projects and able to kind of, whether it's a JV structure or something, go alongside with those investments. And knowing that because, you know, this company has an established relationship, maybe with the communities that they operate in, they've got a balance sheet. They're not, they've got a a tried and tested management team. It's not, there's not like human capital risk that's there. I think there's a lot of potential for companies to fill the gap between you know, who are the quote unquote clean energy guys or the good guys, the ones that are decarbonizing, and then the established industry that they have all the pieces from the risk perspective, but they they're not being brought to the table often enough from the opportunity to decarbonize perspective. There's an opportunity for energy firms to create some space, some distance, some white space between the conventional business. And decarbonization or decarbonizing activities that should attract a lot of capital and interest. And frankly, that's what I see when we have clients that are um, asset owners, that's what they're doing. You know, they're looking for opportunities to take their existing asset mix and pursue decarbonization, either decarbonizing the asset mix or, you know, in the case of a pipeline or something, actually repurposing that pipeline to carry CO2 or what have you, so that the asset itself goes from being a conventional energy asset to being kind of an energy transition asset, if you want to think about it that way.
0: Yeah. And that intuitively makes sense because why introduce even more variables when we have established companies that can can work in areas adjacent or very similar to their core business and be decarbonizing? It seems like a way to, to mitigate Uh, a lot of the risks that you talk about inherent in in trying to find that that unicorn. All right, let me put your powers of foreshadowing uh, and forecasting to use in the final question, Katie, when you think about the future of energy and climate policy in the US, but also around the world, what do you think is
1: most important that no one's talking about today? So this is one of my favorite questions. It's my favorite question to ask people too. So thank you for asking it. But what I would like to set as a goal and a mission for us in Cerebro is to change the way that people talk about environmental justice. And I think environmental justice is a globally significant and important dynamic for future investment. And I think the cause can probably be discussed and debated. I think people probably have a lot of interest in talking about that, like, you know, is it social media? Is it, you know, this maybe change in attitudes towards energy or whatever? But I kind of care less about the cause of, you know, why, why environmental justice, why now? I think We've heard a lot about this concept of a social license to operate, and I think that the market, and including myself, the first time I heard that term, kind of bristled at this idea that companies have to obtain a social license to operate in their communities. But what we have subsequently found is that when you don't do that, your project has an enormous amount of frequently unappreciated risk and you know we need to be realistic perhaps that mega projects are always going to face significant amounts of risk you know i've seen this on a on a very tactical and pragmatic level that monitoring every major pipeline project in the country for a decade the projects that engaged with the communities and were able to offer direct benefits in their communities and kind of meet the people where they are were able to get their projects done while projects who had more of a forceful approach to engaging with the community face overruns, significant cost overruns and delays. And that dynamic of the community give the community power, I think, is only strengthened. And it's not unique to North America. It's absolutely everywhere. It's not unique to blue states. It's It exists in red states too. And one of the things I've been so inspired by with the team at Adam and Teen is that you all really have the answer to a lot of these, these fears and doubts and uncertainties about how to get projects done. It's through this thoughtful, rigorous environmental justice process. And I know that because when I bring this up with investors, it tends to get like a shiver of fear response i think the market really needs to reframe the way that it thinks about and speaks with its invested companies or projects about environmental justice because doing that right is such a huge value add and force multiplier for a good idea which you know project might be a good idea in a lot of senses but it doesn't make sense for a community it's going to face issues Environmental justice is such an important way to make sure that when I do well, when I, the company or I, the project do well, the community I operate in does well as well. And people recognize, I think, and respond to that. So the number one thing that I want people to be talking about with every company and every project meeting is what's the environmental justice plan? What's our environmental justice strategy? Not just giving lip service to this concept of really trying to understand it, invest in it and get people involved because it will make the project better. It'll make the investment better and it'll improve returns. So to me, this is the most important thing that people are not talking about, not talking about in the right way and need to be.
0: Yeah. I've really enjoyed getting your new lens on this work that we, we have made really central. First is community engagement. And then now through this context of environmental justice, and then most recently expanding our thinking to what words will be required for communities that reject the idea of environmental justice, but still expect a process that looks a lot like environmental justice. So there's continued evolution. And I think you are so right. The number one thing a company can do to mitigate their risk is to think of their communities as partners and the need to be an invited partner, not, uh, you know, as you said, the more traditional like one-way communications we've been used to in the past. This is really a hotly evolving area. And I've loved getting your new perspective on on the work we're doing so we can continue, I think, to emphasize and, and grow as these pressures continue to change in real time. Katie, thank you so much for joining me here at adamantine Thanks so much for joining me on the Real Decarbonization Podcast. Thank you, Tisha. Talk to you soon. That's our episode for today. Thanks so much to Katie for joining me. One thing I found really interesting was this idea of the meaty middle. I'm always looking for where we can have the most impact and it's usually nuanced and incremental and this idea of the meaty middle where we actually have to be discerning and think about how to inform our decisions was uh, really interesting to me. I'd like to know what you found interesting. So I hope you'll reach out to us at energythanks.com. If you like what you're hearing, please take a moment and give us a five-star review. It helps other people find this podcast. You can learn more about my latest book at realdecarbonization.com. I'd like to thank my colleague, Adon Rubio, who makes all things podcast possible. Until next time, I'm Tisha Schuler, wishing you and yours happiness, prosperity, and good health.